Please turn with me in the Bible to Exodus chapter 20. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and we have been taking the last few weeks to go through the Ten Commandments, which are found in the middle of this book. Uh, so we are at number seven today. Uh, now, as we've seen, the theme of the book of Exodus as a whole uh, is how God brought the Israelites from bondage in Egypt to belonging to him. And the Ten Commandments are simply God teaching his people and teaching us what it means to belong to him as his people and follow him practically in the world. Uh, so we're looking at the seventh commandment today, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Uh, and let me just say before I even read it, the topic of today's sermon, adultery, is not a light and easy one. You may feel deep regrets if you have failed in this area. You may feel deep hurts if you've been wronged in this area. This might be a topic that you would rather avoid for many reasons. But it is one of the Ten Commandments. I didn't make up the list. I'm just working through it one by one, and this is where we're at. It's on God's list of topics that he wants to address with us. And I truly believe that what God's word says on this topic and on every other topic that it speaks of is not only true, but also good and beautiful and healing and helpful, especially as we see how it leads us to Jesus, our merciful Savior. So the commandment we're looking at, Exodus 20, verse 14, says this, you shall not commit adultery. What is adultery? Basic definition, sexual intimacy between a married person and someone else who is not their spouse, willingly entered into by both parties. Now, as we've done with each of the Ten Commandments, what we're going to do is look at how it's a, this command is a manual that shows us God's good design for us, a mirror that shows us our sin and how we've fallen short, a window that shows us our Savior, Jesus, and a guide that shows us God's path. So first, how is this command a manual that shows us God's good design? Well, like the one before it, you shall not murder, and the one after it, you shall not steal. This command is short, direct, and to the point. In fact, in Hebrew, commands 6, 7, and 8 are only two words each, no murder, no adultery, no stealing. Adultery comes in between murder and stealing, and it has elements of both. Adultery is a form of murder. It destroys the bond established in marriage. And it kills the joy and love and trust that is at the heart of a healthy marriage. Adultery is also a form of stealing. It's not just stealing something. It's stealing someone who rightfully belongs to another. What do people say when they get married? You are mine, and I am yours. We now belong to each other. Adultery is taking uh, someone who belongs to another. Adultery is an extremely serious matter, as anyone who has been on the receiving end of betrayal will attest. I have never met anyone who learned that their spouse cheated on them and then said, it's no big deal, we'll be fine by next week. No, adultery is like a catastrophic collision. The car is now totaled. The people in the car are on their way to the hospital. All the plans for the day are now on hold, and no one knows quite what will come next. And you know, it's not just highly religious people or extremely conservative people who recognize that adultery is a serious matter. Almost all people recognize this, even if they do not agree with or do not intend to follow many of the Bible's other teachings about sex and marriage. 
Many people today would say something like this. As long as everyone is involved is a consenting adult, do as you please. It's fine to have sex regardless of whether you're married. Who's to say that what somebody else does in their bedroom is wrong? You do you, do whatever floats your boat. According to one recent survey, 40% of millennials and Gen Z, vote, and Gen Z folks say that marriage itself is an outdated tradition. But if you were to ask those same people who say that marriage is an outdated tradition, I bet that the vast majority would quickly agree that loyalty is a real thing and betrayal is a real thing. And committed relationships are built on loyalty and destroyed by betrayal. Even people who say, I don't believe in marriage, I won't bother to get married, have no intention of doing so, don't want their partner to cheat on them tonight. Even in a culture that is generally skeptical of the Bible's teaching about sex and marriage, almost everyone agrees that there's something important at stake here. And this was also true back in the time of Moses when God first gave the people this command. Adultery was prohibited not just in the Bible and among the Israelites, but in other societies and in other ancient law codes. Uh, but there's an important difference between all the other ancient law codes and the Bible. So in the other ancient law codes, a wife was considered as belonging to her husband, but not vice versa. And adultery in these other ancient law codes was considered to be an offense against the husband only. People did recognize that adultery had negative effects on society, but it wasn't considered an offense against the gods or against the wife. And so in these other law codes, the offended husband always had the sole legal right to decide what the punishment should be. Would he pardon his wife and the other man, or would he take revenge? It was up to him because he was the boss. In other words, there was a double standard that prevailed throughout the ancient world. If a married man messed around with a woman who wasn't his wife, it was not seen as a serious offense. If a married woman messed around with a man who wasn't her husband, it was seen as a serious offense, and the husband could basically do what he wanted to punish her and the other man. Here's another example from the ancient world that illustrates this point. There was a famous politician and public speaker in ancient Greece named Demosthenes. He lived, in the, he lived later on uh, in the fourth century BC, but he reflects the common attitude of the ancient world. He wrote this, this is what living with a woman as one's wife means. To have children by her and to introduce the sons to the members of the clan and to marry off the daughters to husbands. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. In other words, the attitude was a man could be married and have mistresses and concubines on the side. But a wife was expected to be exclusively loyal to her husband and not have any other men on the side. Now, what do we see when we turn to the Bible? Does the Bible reinforce this double standard or does the Bible challenge it? Now, some people say the Bible, especially the Old Testament, reinforces it. After all, Aren't there several guys in the Bible who had multiple wives and concubines, including some of the big names in the Old Testament? Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, they all had multiple wives or concubines. If those guys did it and the Bible didn't explicitly forbid it, how can we trust what the, anything that the Bible says on this topic? Doesn't it just reflect the male-dominated culture that it came from? 
But consider this. Every time that a guy in the Old Testament has multiple wives or concubines, the biblical story highlights the sinful attitudes that led him down that road and the negative consequences that resulted from that arrangement. Every polygamous marriage or extramarital relationship that the Old Testament describes in any detail results in family strife and division and spiritual downfall and idolatry. The Bible tells the story because it happened. Just because it happened doesn't mean it was right or good. And when we go back to Genesis 2 and look at what God originally intended for human beings, God did not start off the human race with Adam and several different women. He started off with Adam and Eve, just two. And he said in Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two, not three, four, five, six, or any other number, the two shall become one flesh. And later on, as the story of the Bible unfolds, we see that human marriage is intended to be a picture of an even more glorious reality, of God's steadfast love and God's unwavering commitment and God's everlasting union with his people. So in the Old Testament, God compares himself uh, to a husband and calls Israel, the people of Israel, his wife. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus Christ is likened to a husband and the church is described as his bride. So in other words, God's purpose for the purpose God intended for marriage, marriage is not just for the purpose of bearing and raising children and carrying on a family name. That's what most people in the ancient world thought marriage was primarily about. And marriage is not just for the purpose of mutual joy and personal growth and fulfillment. That's what most people in the modern world think that marriage is primarily about. Those are both legitimate purposes of marriage. But above all, God intended marriage to be a signpost pointing to his own loyal love and his own unwavering commitment to his people. Now, this is also one key reason why God designed marriage specifically and only as a male-female union. It's not only because of the biological fact that you need the contribution of both a male and a female in order to have a child, though that's true. At an even deeper level, it's because marriage is meant to embody the reality that there is a God who is fundamentally different from us. But he desires to be united with us, and he has made a way for us to be eternally united with him through Jesus Christ. God and his people are two fundamentally different entities, and a husband and a wife are two people whose fundamental difference is inscribed on the very structure of their bodies. And yet, God designed our fundamentally different male and female human bodies to have the capacity of uniting with one another in the most intimate way possible, and when it is God's will, that union can bring forth a new human being into the world. It's breathtakingly amazing. Why did God design our physical bodies this way, and why did God institute marriage as the union of two fundamentally different people in order to point us to the even more amazing reality? that we were made not just to enjoy physical union with another human being who is bodily different than us, but to enjoy spiritual union with the God 
who is perfectly holy and utterly different from us. And the good news is that through Jesus Christ, God has made a way that we can be united with him, that we might receive his everlasting love and rely on his unwavering faithfulness and dwell with him for all eternity. So whether or not you ever get married to another human being in your entire earthly life, you can experience for all eternity what the best marriage on earth is only a pale reflection of. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the happiness which God designed for us is the happiness of being freely and voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight, compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is merely watered down milk. Now getting back to our commandment of the day, if marriage is intended to be a reflection of the loyal love of God himself for us, his people, then adultery is not just an offense against another human being. Adultery is first and foremost an offense against God. And that's the main difference if you look at what the Old Testament and the New Testament says about adultery. It doesn't just treat us as an, it doesn't treat it like all the other ancient law codes did as an offense primarily against the husband. It treats it primarily, first and foremost, as an offense against God, who made us male and female in his image. So that's how this command is a manual that shows us God's good design. But second, this command is a mirror that shows us our sin. Now, some of you may say, I've been married for many years, and I've never cheated on my spouse. If so, that is a very good thing. Thank God for healthy and growing marriages, and thank God also for struggling but persevering marriages, because both of those reflect God's heart and character. But as with all the other commandments, Jesus doesn't let us off the hook quite so easily. In Matthew 5, 27, 28, Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, whenever Jesus talks about the Ten Commandments and what it means to obey them, he doesn't just talk about controlling our external appearance and behavior. He digs down deep into the soil of our hearts. And, that, and, and in doing so, he exposes our inner motives, our controlling thoughts, our deepest desires. Uh, some of you may know we had some flooding in the church basement this summer, and one of the things we've done to uh, address that is we had a contractor here recently to regrade the land in back of the church so the water flows away from the church instead of toward the church. While he was digging, he found an underground oil tank. It had been there, apparently, for over 60 years because it was in the plans when the addition was built 60 years ago. Supposed to be removed then, wasn't. Thankfully, he was able to remove it, and the soil was not contaminated by it. But that's a picture of what sometimes happens when the Lord Jesus starts digging up the soil of our heart. Sometimes he exposes spiritual junk that we try to hide beneath the surface. You see, Jesus says that evil deeds, including adultery, don't arise out of nowhere. Sometimes when, someone, when it comes to light, that a spouse has been unfaithful, people, sometimes people are shocked. And people say, but how could they do that? Where did that come from? They seem to be such an upstanding person. But Jesus says that 
evil deeds arise out of what has been planted and cultivated and sometimes hidden under the surface of our hearts. Let me speak to those of us who are married first. What spiritual junk have we cultivated in our hearts even if we have never acted out physically? How about these things? Despising our spouse for his or her flaws and foibles. Perhaps complaining about them to others instead of honoring our spouse as a fellow image bearer whom God has brought into our life and seeking to work together on the hard edges. How about fantasizing when marriage is hard? If only I had married a different person. What might my life be like if I was married to someone like that? Or lust, plain and simple. Seeing a beautiful person on the street or on a screen and wanting him or her and indulging those thoughts and imaginations. Or self-pity and resentment. Don't I deserve something better than what I'm getting? Don't I therefore have the right to do whatever I want to get what I want? Jesus sees all those self-centered thoughts and attitudes that often lurk and hide beneath the surface of our hearts. They do not, thankfully, they do not always lead to physical adultery. God restrains us from doing the evil that we might want to do in many ways, but they do corrupt the soil of a marriage. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. In that verse, Jesus mentions commandments 6, 7, 8, 9 in a row. Murder, number 6, adultery and sexual immorality, number 7, theft, number 8, false witness and slander, number 9. He says all of those things begin in the heart. Now notice that Jesus mentions not only adultery in particular, but also sexual immorality in general. So adultery in the Bible is a more specific term that refers specifically to a married person being unfaithful to their marriage vows. Sexual immorality in the Bible is a more general term that refers to anyone, whether married or not, who acts in a way that dishonors God's design for sex and marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Whether you are married or not, what does sexual immorality include? Well, it includes a lot of things that are very common in today's world. It includes looking at pornography. According to some researchers, roughly one in five internet searches are for porn. And the average age at which a young person is exposed to porn, usually unintentionally at first, is approximately 13. In 2023, the adult and pornographic websites industry in the United States was on track to, to match the revenue of the NCAA, 1.15 billion. Porn is very accessible and very destructive. Sexual immorality would also include seeking solitary sexual pleasure, self-stimulation with no connection to a real person other than yourself. Many people would say, but what's the problem with that? One problem 
is that it fosters a self-centered and self-gratifying mindset. It doesn't prepare you well for marriage to a real person who is different than you and whose desires and availability don't always match up with yours. A person who will sometimes be sick or exhausted or traveling or distracted or taking care of kids. If you're single and you think that getting married will remove the need for sexual self-control, you're wrong. Self-control is necessary for all of us, whether we are single or married. Sexual immorality also includes sexual abuse, sexual abuse and sexual harassment. Again, sadly prevalent in our world. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says that filthy talk and crude joking are out of place for followers of Jesus. Also, sexual immorality would include having sex with anyone who you are not married to. Now, many people would say, that's crazy. That's so old-fashioned. How in the world can you say that in today's world? We love each other. We're committed to each other. We don't need a piece of paper to prove that. But consider what it means to have sex with another person. What should it mean? Should it mean, I like you for tonight, but I might like someone else tomorrow, next weekend, next month, or next year? Should it mean, I've successfully seduced you, one more to add to my list? Should it mean, okay, I'll give you what you want, in hopes that you'll give me what I want in return, and as long as we're both happy, we can keep this arrangement going. All of those attitudes, fairly common, distort and diminish what God intended sex to mean. Here's what God intended sex to mean. I would marry you all over again tonight. If sex is the ultimate physical union, marriage is the ultimate whole life union. That's why Genesis 2.24 says a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. In other words, publicly declare his loyalty to her, make marriage vows, and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, be sexually united. God designed sex and marriage to go together. He designed sex to be a physical embodiment and a joyful reaffirmation of the marriage promises. He designed it to mean this, I am yours and you are mine. I'm not holding back anything from you. I'll give you everything I have, and I'll be faithful to you till death do us part. If you haven't made those marriage promises to someone else, you should not have sex with them, according to the Bible, because doing so would distort and diminish what God intended sex to mean. Now, if you've already crossed that bridge, if you're in a sexual relationship with someone who you're not married to, What might you do? Well, there are two things that you can do if you're seeking to follow the way of Jesus Christ. Number one would be to get married in order to honor God's design for marriage. Don't keep putting it off if you've been waiting to do so for a long time. Or two, until you get married, stop sleeping together out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that this is not a common message in today's world, you might feel offended by what I just said. Or you might be convinced that God wants you to make a change. And if so, that's an indication that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart, and that's a good thing. Either way, you might have questions, and wherever you're at, 
I'm happy to have an honest conversation and respectful conversation with you. But here's the thing. If you have come to the point where you have said, I have surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I have accepted him as my Savior and my Lord. I want to follow him for the rest of my life. Then you cannot ignore the fact that he is Lord over this area of life too. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of relatively new followers of Jesus, people who had just begun following Jesus in the last couple few years. He wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like people who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, God takes these matters seriously. This command for all of us is a mirror that shows us our sin. Now, if I were to end the sermon right here, many of us might walk out of here with a bunch of guilt and shame on our backs. Because we've seen God's good design and we've seen many ways that we and our world have fallen short of it. But please listen to the rest, because there's good news. This command doesn't just show us God's good design and the ways we fall short of it, it also shows us our Savior Jesus. There's good news for all who have sinned against this command, because Jesus Christ received and for, uh, receives and forgives sexual sinners. We read earlier from John chapter 8, People brought to Jesus a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Of course, the man involved was nowhere to be found. Again, the double standard that prevailed through all the ancient world. And Jesus was in part confronting and exposing that double standard in his response. Jesus knew that they were setting him up, and Jesus was confronting that. But notice how Jesus treated the woman. He did not despise or condemn or reject her for what she had done. He also did not affirm what she had done. He did not say, you do you. He offered her forgiveness for the past and hope and guidance for the future. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. And that's what Jesus offers to each one of us who recognize that we have fallen short of his commands in whatever way we might have. Jesus does not look down on us. He does not despise us. He does not single out this one sin and say, well, all the other sins are tolerable, but this one excludes you. No. He does not tell us we are too dirty or too unworthy or too broken or in too complicated a life situation to come to him. He says, come to me. Come to me just as you are, because you can't come in any other way. You can only come to Jesus right where you are. And he offers forgiveness for the past and hope and guidance for the future. There is also good news for anyone who has been hurt, betrayed, abused, or abandoned. Perhaps you've been on the receiving end of adultery or some other kind of unfaithfulness or betrayal. The good news is that Jesus Christ is an ever faithful spouse. 
He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Consider how Jesus treated women throughout his earthly life. His attitude was utterly sincere and deeply respectful. If you read through all of Jesus' interactions with women throughout the Gospels, he never treated women as objects for his own gratification. He never saw women as threats to be avoided. He never despised women or treated them as second-class citizens. No, he healed and taught women, conversed with them, and received their hospitality and support. Even if every other man you've known has been a jerk, isn't Jesus the kind of man you would want to know? But consider also how Jesus was treated toward the end of his life. Jesus was betrayed by a close friend with whom he had shared a meal the night before. He was abandoned by those who had promised to remain with him always. He was beaten and mocked and publicly humiliated. He was stripped naked and exposed before a hostile and jeering crowd. If you've been betrayed, rejected, humiliated, Jesus can identify with what you've experienced. And the good news is that Jesus' life did not end in humiliation and disgrace. Yes, he died on the cross, but three days later, he rose again to life, victorious and glorious. And Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the sake of the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? The joy of bringing us with him out of shame and despair and death and into everlasting life and honor and glory. Hebrews 2 says Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, he's an advocate who knows what we've experienced and who comes alongside us and is a compassionate healer. He is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, Yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So let me encourage you, wherever you've been and whatever you've experienced, draw near to Jesus. He's the faithful Savior. Finally, how is this command a guide? Well, let me speak to first to those of us who are married. Let me give us a simple challenge. How can you honor your spouse this week? The goal of this command is not merely to avoid committing physical adultery this week. The goal of this command is to do the opposite, to grow in expressing love and honor and affection and kindness toward our spouse. So take a concrete step this week. Tell your spouse why you're thankful for them or write them a letter or card. Buy some flowers for no other reason, just because. Fix some things or clean some things around the house if that's what your spouse would appreciate, or just sit down and have a conversation. Find time to have a romantic evening. You know, in a society where more and more people are skeptical of the very idea of marriage, do not underestimate the distinctive Christian witness of having a growing and healthy marriage, or even a struggling but persevering marriage. When Jesus Christ is present in you, that means he's also present to others through you. And so if you take the time to grow in being the best spouse you can be, in seeking to keep on growing in your marriage all the way through your life, 
other people may notice and say, hmm, that actually seems like a good thing, a worthwhile thing. Second, uh, for, to those who are single, let me speak especially to those who are single and feel tempted in one way or other in this area. In traditional societies and often in traditional churches, there is a pressure put on everyone to get married. And there is an underlying assumption that people who don't get married might be defective in, one, in some way. Remember this, Jesus never got married when he was on earth. And he wasn't antisocial, socially awkward, or defective in any way. Getting married and raising a family was simply not part of the mission that God gave Jesus to accomplish during his earthly ministry. And throughout the history of the church, there have been a host of Christians who have never married or who have been widowed or uh, divorced through circumstances out of their control and, have remain, and for various reasons have chosen to remain single or have not found a suitable marriage partner and who have advanced the kingdom of God in highly significant ways. The Apostle Paul, at least during his missionary work, was not married. Maybe he was never married. Uh, maybe he'd been widowed very young. Uh, and many Christians have followed his, his example of doing missionary work in dangerous places. Others have devoted their lives to caring for widows, for orphans, for the sick and dying, for troubled and needy people. If you're single, whether or not you've been married in the past, whether or not you hope to get married in the future, how can you use your single status and the, and the flexibility and freedom that comes along with it to advance God's mission, to promote God's purposes in the world. Also, as a single person, let me encourage you to intentionally cultivate friendships. Jesus never married, but he enjoyed rich friendships, not only with his 12 disciples, but also with people like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Scripture says Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus and that he would go to their house to recline at their table to enjoy a leisurely and friendly meal. You see, if you focus on finding the purpose which God has for you in your singleness and investing in friendships, including friendships with other Christians, then you will generally find it easier to resist sexual temptation when that temptation rears its ugly head. As with many temptations, if you only focus on I need to resist this temptation, and that's my goal, period, end, you will often fall into it. But if you take a broader view and fix your eyes on Jesus and think, how can I focus on what Jesus has for me and trust that he has something good for me and that, as his word says, he fulfills our desires with good things and renews our youth like the eagles and gives us strength all the way through our lives, then often it's easier to say no to something when you have something to say yes to. And Jesus always has something for us to say yes to. That's meaningful and purposeful, and that involves friendship and community. So that's how this command is a guide for us. Let me close us in prayer. Almighty God, This, once again, is a weighty topic. 
and we pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that you want to do in each of us. We pray you'd forgive us for the ways that we've fallen short. We pray that you would give us hope and guidance and strength for the future. Help us to cling to you. Help us even when we don't have everything sorted out, not to run away from you or shy away from admitting that, but help us to be honest about where we are. And we pray that you would lead us in the ways that you want us to go. And we thank you above all that this command reminds us of your faithfulness. You have promised never to leave us nor forsake us. You have been loyal to us all the way to the end, and you proved that. You went to the cross to die for our sins so that you might bring us to yourself, so that you might be united with us, that we might be part of your bride, your church, for all eternity. So help us to rejoice in your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.